Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Obviously, you're making sacrifices when you get an online degree, um, but it's hard to turn down a $22,000 or $24,000 MBA from a very good school with senior faculty teaching. Our guest zooming in is John Byrne, founder and editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants on the costs and rewards of the MBA degree, remote learning, the search for meaning in business careers, and so much more. Please do stay with us. This special episode is made possible by the support of the Robin School of Business at the University of Richmond, offering undergraduate, graduate, and executive education programs. The Robin School prepares students to be future leaders in a global business world by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robins.richmond.edu. And by Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. Learn more at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from Northern California is John Byrne, founder and editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants, which is all things MBA and business careers. In a past life, John was executive editor of Business Week and was the top editor at Fast Company. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, and I'm doing better because I can hear your voice. By way of full disclosure, John hired me at Business Week a little more than 15 years ago out of business school, and and we were co-conspirators on many fun cover stories. Uh, John, it all seems like a hallucination now, but I do believe we lived in the, the, the closing days of the heyday of glossy magazine journalism. Boy, they were lucky days, let me tell you. There were, there were big expense accounts there, Robin. You know, the editorial budget for Business Week magazine in its heyday was like close to $100 million. That's nuts. The bureaus were all over the world, uh, all over the states. Uh, the editorial staff was just remarkable. We had really good people and, uh, and they did great work, including you. Now, I have to say that Robin, even his younger self, was as irreverent and provocative as he is today. This young man would actually imitate me in the hallways of Business Week and did a pretty damn good job at it. (laughs) Yeah, that was my way of coping, I guess, with the existential pressures of magazine journalism. We always thought we were never going to move the needle uh, for the parent company, that we were always going to be safe or too small to be noticed at the company. But, you know, that all dissipated after 2008, didn't it? Indeed. I was lecturing some students today, and I remembered my first job out of college at a brokerage firm where I was quickly miserable, and I'm haunted by something my dad said to me at the time. Robin, they're not paying you to be happy. They're paying you to be productive, and it's something I've struggled with, this chastening that a young person has to get right out of college, the idealism of college, that it's understood that when you're hired, you will more likely than not not like your first job, that if anything, it's going to teach you what you don't want to do. Yeah. It's about showing up and getting stuff done. 
And sometimes that's not a whole lot of fun. And young people do tend to be, I'll use the word, abused. You know, uh, many people don't have a lot of leverage when they're young. And so, you know, accept, you accept what you can and you make the best of it. And, you know, you're in learning mode and that this is a temporary kind of purgatory. John, but I had such joie de vivre. I had a full head of dark hair. I spoke foreign languages. I wrote a multidisciplinary senior thesis. All of that was recruited, I thought. But when they brought me in, it was all about slapping together pitch books and spreadsheets. <laughs> I mean, isn't there a faster way to do that? Recruit people out of high school or trade school and just train them to make great pitch books and spreadsheets? Ah, sure you can. But then you're, you're forgetting that filters are very important in hiring. And let's face it, uh, a degree from a highly selective university is a filtering mechanism. The university did its work in deciding that you were good enough to get in. Uh, then it graded you for four years on your work. And uh, hopefully you got a high GPA. Then maybe you applied to a graduate school, and that was highly selective. Or before going to graduate school, you applied to a highly selective job, and they filtered you as well and screened you. Everyone who hires is risk adverse. And what they're looking for is excuses either not to hire someone or excuses to hire someone because you've been vetted numerous times before. John, but I knew contemporaries in my training class that, you know, they were from the tiniest of schools and they had a chip on their shoulders, this willingness to do grunt work, even take on admin level jobs to get a foot in the door. And I think if you could filter for that, wouldn't it even be more powerful than pedigree, this, this grit, this wanting to get in and kind of tough it out? That's true. I mean, look, they're, because the demand for people is greater than the elite institutions can even produce. And let's face it, there are really good people out there who don't get the chance to go to an elite institution, be it an educational journey or just employer history. And uh, many of those people, frankly, are as smart or smarter than those who get the chance, the privilege to go to elite institutions. Uh, and they may very well work a lot harder. John, what about the MBA? No shortage of thought pieces on LinkedIn and Fast Company or, or The Economist that it's an optional degree or maybe vacation for private equity people. But it's also been historically a counter-cyclical degree. You see a spike of applicants uh, amid the downturns, the likes of which we saw in 2020. That's really true. Look, uh, there has always been a fair number of naysayers about the degree, its value, and its cost. It's true. You do not need an MBA to be uh, in business or to even have a successful business career. Uh, it's also true that there are certain parts of business that would be pretty much closed down to you. You'd be hard-pressed to get a job in consulting without an MBA degree. You could do it in investment banking, but uh, the road might be harder. You could do it in investment management, uh, but again, you, you might have to spend a lot more time in the trenches. And you probably wouldn't know as much as an MBA would know. You should know this. You graduated from Harvard with your MBA. But do you really believe that? I met people in college who were reading Barron's when they were 15, and they never needed another degree after they got into Wall Street out of college. I mean... Find a mentor, keep your head down, find your pain threshold and ride out the booms and busts. And decades later, 
uh, at these firms or, or elsewhere where they were poached. They're right where the MBAs are, but not lighter a couple of hundred thousands of you know dollars or, or, or debt that they have to take on for the degree. <laughs> but we are in a society that values credentials uh, and that values higher education, and and for good reason. Uh, you know, I, I I am an unabashed advocate for the MBA degree. I looked at all the research. I've been covering this for many years. I've interviewed thousands of students all over the world. I've visited campuses all over the world. And I have to tell you that to me, an MBA degree is a no-brainer if you're interested in business and you're interested in being more effective as a person. You know, it's and it's not just the basics of learning, accounting, and finance, and statistics, and marketing, and strategy, and operations. It's uh, being put together with people who are like you, smart and ambitious, wanting to do something meaningful with their lives, and being part of something special. You know, you the people you beat in business school, they're a very eclectic group. They are people who, you know, want to live a multidimensional life. What do I mean by multidimensional life? I mean, work means something to them. Work is personal. Work is a reflection of who they are. It's part of their identity. It's critical to their well-being, and they want to be the best that they can be. And to be surrounded by people that are like that, that want that, is an important experience for people. The other thing that happens is you make enduring friendships that will last a lifetime. And your friends, being like-minded in terms of their ambition for their lives, uh, are going to go someplace. And you're going to have a group of people who will support, who will encourage you, who will hire you, who will tell you about opportunities in other industries and other companies who will be your suppliers, your customers, your guinea pigs, your investors, uh, should you choose to do a startup. So, you know, I, I and an MBA education, besides not only being about business, it's about personal development. Now, there is no other discipline taught at a university that focuses on personal development the way an MBA degree does. You will be assigned a one-on-one coach, you will have mentors, uh, your the second year students will be guiding you along the way. Many doors will open merely because you're in a university and you're getting your MBA. I think it's a really special experience. Is, is there a sticker price shock? Absolutely. These degrees cost too much, but they cost too much because they're heavily discounted to many people. So the scholarship money, the fellowship money that's available to get an MBA is substantial. Uh, at almost all the schools, there are schools that are literally, I would say, giving away the degree because it's a flagship and they want to assure the quality of the students who are in it. And they're willing to basically do the program as a lost leader mm. uh, to, to get a ranking that casts a shadow over all their other programs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to John Byrne, founder and editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants. John, tell me about the GMAT. You're increasingly seeing more programs say that it is uh, optional? Yeah. Uh, I think the pandemic has really hurried, hurried along a revolution. And that revolution is, has led to the decline of the GMAT and the GRE, standardized testing in general. You know, uh, most uh, universities have made standardized testing optional in recent years. Most of the Ivies are test optional for their undergraduate admissions. And because of the pandemic, there are many schools that now either will promote 
waiver policies or will actually be test optional. In fact, two thirds of the top 100 MBA programs in the United States are now either test optional or will agree to waive the test. And when you when you scratch down on it, some of this is because test centers closed during the height of the pandemic. The institutions, ETS and GMAC, went to online versions of the test, but it took a while for them to develop them. The early versions of those tests had technical difficulties associated with them. So someone would be in their house trying to take the exam on their laptop computer. The UPS guy would come to the door, ring the doorbell, and bang, the internet would go wild while they were taking this test. And with all the significance uh, that that test can have in MBA admissions, And the admissions directors were hearing these horror stories and basically said, this is ridiculous. We've got to be much more flexible about this. And the other thing that's happening is the acknowledgement that standardized testing has a number of problems with it, right? I mean, uh, socioeconomic problems. So uh, standardized testing used as an admissions gate uh, does diminish the ability of a school to recruit a diverse class. Women who tend to always get grades better than men in graduate school and undergraduate school tend to score lower than men. The test is in English, and we all know that a really good MBA program full-time would have a third or more of its students be international, so many of them are taking the test, and English is a second language for them. And then when you look at the actual correlation of the test to performance, there's virtually no correlation at all. Why do we have it? Why has it been gospel for so long? There was concern that the minimal quant and math in a core curriculum could trip up some people, and schools wanted some assurance that if they accepted someone, they could feel confident that they'll complete the quantitative aspects of the core without too much difficulty. Uh, That's the only correlation it does have, and and, and many people would argue that the correlation there is not as heavy as it should be. So, you know, and and then, you know, admissions for a good graduate business school are pretty holistic. Uh, People are interviewed in person. Recommendations have to be filed by people who know you fairly well. Your track record at work is studied. Uh, They have your undergraduate transcript, and they look at the entire transcript, including your grades on more rigorous courses. So there's a lot of information that they already have that may, in fact, correlate better than a GMAT or GRE score to your success. John, what about um, women matriculants right out of college? This question was always persistent in my MBA experience, especially from those who were ascending the managing director or partnership track at, at these huge firms. There are people I talk to, and I've talked to since, who confided, if only I could have attended B-School right out of college, those valuable early 20-something years, if I could have them back, that really would have helped my career trajectory, what with the glass ceiling and family and everything else. Are more MBA programs coming to the realization that something is gained by accepting applicants right out of college? Uh, Yes. Uh, Students are becoming younger and less experienced at a lot of MBA programs. But what's really happening uh, is the proliferation of deferred admission programs at the elite MBA schools. So yes, Harvard and Stanford and Wharton were losing many incredible women to med school and law school because you can go direct from undergraduate from your undergraduate institution. And they were losing a lot of talent. 
So what these schools have devised are programs where they'll admit you in your senior year, two years to work, and then you have a ticket to come to school once you put in your two or three years in, in, at work. And what that does is eliminate some of the concern that a lot of women have about getting your education over really quickly and then moving on to establish their career and establish a family, which has held back business schools from reaching gender parity by and large, along with obviously the glass ceiling, which, which still seems pretty prevalent in business and maybe less pre- prevalent in medicine and law. Uh, Focus, if you will, on Wall Street in particular. So many of these jobs have been automated, or the banks are now looking for quants and physics majors, black box types, who will probably get poached anyway. Uh, Still, not MBAs. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the schools that have been the traditional feeders to Wall Street, Columbia, NYU Stern, Wharton, among others, the percentage of students who actually go into finance has really declined dramatically. You know, at Columbia, for example, it was always the case that well over 50% of the MBAs would automatically go into finance, most of them right down the Wall Street. Uh, it's way down. It's like in the 30s now. More often than not, the, the most attractive fields for MBAs are consulting and technology today. And I think that part of, the, part of this is the automation story. Part of it is that MBAs became very expensive. Goldman Sachs began to prefer business undergrads to MBAs. So, you know, there are a bunch of factors. And and frankly, there are a lot of MBAs who, uh, like it or not, don't want to work 80 hours a week and on the weekend. Uh, And, you know, you take an iBanking job. Those are table stakes. Totally, totally. You know, We hold every year a pre-MBA networking festival for people who've been admitted to MBA programs but have not yet stepped foot on campus. And this is an early reach to uh, people to see, okay, what are the possibilities? What are the doors that are going to open to me once I get my MBA? And we always have uh, an opening panel with you know, someone from McKinsey representing consulting, someone from tech often Amazon, uh, someone from um, the consumer luxury goods, L'Oreal perhaps, and then always someone from an investment bank. And when the investment banker would always say, oh, we have a new policy to address work-life balance, and they would say, pencils down on Saturday, people would laugh out loud. <laughs> okay, that means I'm going to be there on Saturday. <laughs> and now I can get to put my pencil down so I don't have to come in on Sunday. Whoopee. <laughs> What's behind that social compact? People line up for the investment banks and consulting shop recruiting socials at all colleges. I mean, they talk culture and teamwork, but then six or seven months into it, you realize, well, I guess we're just using each other. It's a burnout machine. And yet year in, year out, these firms have no shortage of applicants. No, that's really true. I mean, this year, Bain alone, the consulting firm, will hire 700 MBAs. Incidentally, Amazon now hires over 1,000 freshly minted MBAs a year. So, you know, there's no shortage of companies that want MBAs, and there's no shortage of MBAs who want Bain and Morgan and Apple and Amazon and Google and Microsoft, et cetera. Full disclosure, stay with us. My guest is John Byrne, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Quants, the successful portal for all things business, education, and careers. John, take me back to your digital education. When did you realize there was glory to be had in online and not at your cushy print magazine editing position? Was there a revelation? Yeah. 
Well, it, it did happen at Business Week when I came back from Fast Company and I came back as the executive editor of the magazine and ran the magazine on a daily basis. But then what happened is the uh, online operation was open and the editor-in-chief asked me if I would be willing to take it over. And at first I said, what? Wait, all the money, all the prestige, all the glory is in print. Do I really want to do this? And I really had a lot of qualms about it. And all of my friends said, John, you're nuts. At your age, you have this incredible opportunity to play in the future of media. How can you turn it down? And I ultimately agreed. I went and it was a revelation to me. The immediacy of it, the ability to access the public who's actually reading your copy and to engage with them. I really loved that idea. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but my whole thing was engagement. You know, I kind of felt like old media brands had content. Facebook had community. Yahoo Finance is basically initially a curation play. But every one of these institutions was playing uh, a one-note symphony, right? You either played community or you played curation or you played the content game. I saw the online world as a place to play all three in one place. And so the biggest initiative that I started at businessweek.com was on engagement. I rewarded reporters who engaged in conversations with the readers. I used social media to ask our readers, hey, our lead story next uh, tomorrow will be X or Y. We're deciding, what do you think? And for reporters who engaged with the audience, which was hard to get them to do, incidentally, uh, because, you know, we want you to do a story, you're on to the next story. The last thing you want to do is think of the story as a starting point. For a journalist, it's the end point. I felt the story was really the campfire around which you gather a group of people, uh, and the campfire inspires stories. And that's how you amplify what the, the original reporting by the, by the journalist uh, and you build on the story and you add far greater value than you could in print. And so it was really crucial uh, to get journalists to then engage, including soliciting story ideas from your audience. And if you engaged at businessweek.com, I made sure that your story was more aggressively promoted and kept on the homepage. And guess what, Robin, if you didn't engage with the audience, I took you off the homepage really quickly. I'll have to admit, I was one of those dinosaurs. Uh, here you are. What is it? 11 years after you started? Yes. And it's profitable? It has how many staffers? Sure. We have 15 full-time employees, uh, editorial staff of five full-time. We have five different websites. We are you know, over $4 million in revenue. We were cash flow positive within three months, profitable in the first year. Every year we've been profitable. In fact, every year we've had record revenue. Last year during the pandemic, we had record profit, record revenue, and record traffic. I'm going to give you a jump ball looking at the website. The headline here struck me. Boston University's $24,000 online MBA is a big hit. I got to tell you, Professor Byrne, if I walk into a Starbucks... They want me buying the $5.75 frappy, frappy, venti, mocha, hoka latte. They, they won't just put out a 99-cent no-frills cup at the door. You know, what I'm getting at here is cannibalization. Aren't these guys terrified of a lower-cost basis, lower-ticket online MBA cannibalizing their traditional full-degree profit center? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because 
One of the great ironies of the technology and the use of technology in education was the notion that what technology would do is make higher education more accessible to greater numbers of people because it would bring prices down. And the early purveyors of online degree programs uh, took a different tack. They thought that their degree online was worth as much as their on-campus degree, and they priced it that way. Now what we have are disruptors who've come into the game with really good brands, Boston University, $24,000 online MBA, University of Illinois, Gies College of Business, online MBA for $22,000, uh, and have completely disrupted higher education. And these programs are among the fastest growing MBAs in the world. They're well-constructed. They're taught by the senior faculty of the school. They include weekly live internet classes, uh, assignments and projects. When uh, before the pandemic, uh, the opportunity for global immersions in some of them. So they are fully featured uh, MBAs delivered online for a fraction of the cost. Now, obviously you're making sacrifices when you get an online degree, um, but it's hard to turn down a $22,000 or $24,000 MBA from a very good school with senior faculty teaching. John, I see a question from one of our attendees, Nicole Hansen. Do you think the graduates of these less expensive programs will be taken less seriously than full price MBA grads? Things have changed. You know, we grew up as uh, digital immigrants. Uh, people who are in these programs are digital natives. They grew up with a computer in hand. They've played games on it. They've interacted with their friends on it. They've learned on it. And I think that their attitude about learning online is very different from our old attitude about what online learning was supposed to be. It was supposed to be something you got at the University of Phoenix. It was decidedly second or third rate. It was cheap and it felt cheap. It's changed. Things have changed dramatically. And uh, you have brands like Carnegie Mellon, the University of Michigan, Rice University, all in the online MBA game. And uh, it's, it's also legitimized online education. Indiana University's Kelly School of Business was an early pioneer over 20 years ago. They have a fantastic program. And I can tell you, people are getting recruited out of that program at you know, world-class businesses. In fact, it was one recent person who got an MBA from Indiana Kelly, who actually parlayed it into a job at McKinsey. I got to ask you, take a company as huge and disruptive and envied and as controversial as Tesla. Uh, broadly speaking, does it have any need for MBAs? Well, if you listen to Elon Musk, you would think not. But the truth is that his senior ranks of executives are completely filled with uh, MBAs. His CFO at Tesla is an MBA graduate. His CIO, I believe, is an MBA graduate. I did a story on this for Poets and Quants after he came out with his latest critique of the MBA degree, uh, which is widely publicized. He's actually been a fairly steady and consistent critic of the MBA degree and its overall value and what MBAs contribute to business. But just look at who works for him at the highest ranks, a lot of MBAs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to John Byrne of Poets and Quants. I want to use this occasion to bring in my creative co-conspirator, Dean Miki Quinones of the Robin School. Dean, I'm sure you're chock full of questions. Meanwhile, I'm going to keep taking audience queries over Zoom. 
and social media. So please uh, take the mic. Great. Yeah, great. Thank you, John. This is excellent. Thanks, Robin. Really appreciate it. You know, I'm curious, have you seen a shift in what candidates for MBA programs have value in their programs, what they're looking for? I'm thinking, for example, in the pandemic, we've seen a, a realization or an awakening to the role that businesses play in society. And have you seen a shift towards perhaps more social enterprise type programs or anything like that? Yeah, there. I think there have been a number of uh, shifts. One shift is in curricula itself in these programs. And then there is the shift in interest. I think the greater percentages of women coming into the programs have actually broadened the interest of uh, MBA graduates. So yes, there are more and more people who see the MBA as an all-purpose degree in the same way that many who entered law saw the law degree as an all-purpose degree. And so you have increasing numbers of people going to nonprofits, NGOs, mission-driven organizations in particular, and early stage companies, uh, startups, where traditionally in the older days, MBAs didn't go. And uh, it's become quite common. Now, the cost of an MBA degree often is very high, and that makes it difficult for someone who wants to enter the nonprofit field, government education, fields that tend not to pay the highest salaries. But like I said before, there are very generous discounts being given to many of these MBA students through treasure troves of scholarships. And uh, oftentimes, even classmates at some schools will help fund their students who choose a different path. So there's definitely more interest in there. And then in curriculum, as you know, I'm sure, you know, there have been massive investments made in entrepreneurship in the past I'd say 20 years by business schools. And those investments have done two things. They've encouraged people actually to think for themselves and think if they have opportunities that they might want to seize using business schools and incubator of sorts to launch their businesses in, in kind of like a safe way because you have uh, your fellow students to help. Uh, you have access to resources you never would have otherwise have. You have faculty mentors. Uh, and more often than not, you have serial entrepreneurs who are attached to every business school to help. So it takes a lot of the risk out of a startup to use your business school experience uh, as an entrepreneurial journey. And then the other big thing, obviously, is data analytics. We are overwhelmed in data. Companies generally do not know how to harness the data for effective decision making. And data analytics, business analytics has become a very big and growing field at every business school, an important part of the curriculum. It's embedded in many courses today, along with how is the future going to turn out, the future of work. And then you start talking about what will be the impact of machine learning and artificial intelligence on the way we work, on the way we play, on who gets employed, who gets uh, basically made redundant. And so I think, you know, your job and the job of every dean is to make sure your students can't be replaced by an algorithm or a robot years from now. That's right. Well, somebody has to decide how those algorithms work and what kind of values <laughs> they hold to. So to that point, do you, do you see a rise in interdisciplinary programs? So for example, business schools partnering with computer science, engineering, and even some of the liberal arts. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Scott Hartley, who wrote The Fuzzy and the Techie, arguing that a lot of the digital and, and technology uh, questions are really liberal arts questions around uh, around ethics, around values, around societal impact in terms of dividing populations and things like that. That's, that's another really fascinating trend. You know, business schools largely grew up on the periphery of the university campus. 
true scholars and academics sort of snubbed their nose at the, at the business types who were trying to deliver in the early days what they called trade school education, pragmatic education to prepare someone for work as opposed to the world. And in more recent years, there's been tremendous amounts of outreach, even if the jealousy of the success of business schools has caused uh, some angst uh, among the liberal arts faculty who tend not to get the resources that business schools get because they don't bring in the money or have as many students. But there's been tremendous outreach both in and outside. And business schools are increasingly at the center of the universe as opposed to on the outside or the periphery. And I think this is a really good development because most business schools, are, after, after all, generally teach a general management approach, right? Sure, you can major in a given discipline or even an industry or function, but by, by and large, what you get in an MBA certainly is, is a general uh, management approach. What you get in an undergraduate business education is a general management approach, uh, regardless of your major. And so combining computer science or engineering or design or public policy or even law and ethics uh, and other topics with business is a very strong combination. And it's healthy for business students to be in classes, in business classes with students from other disciplines to hear how other people think. Because, you know, still there are many out there who think those who go to business school have sharp elbows, they're masters of the universe, they're there because they're greedy. Well, they're not. And you know this from personal experience. Having met so many students in so many countries all over the world, I can tell you that the people who attend business school are smart, eclectic, ambitious beyond themselves, people you want at your dinner table at night to converse with, people you want as friends. John, let me ask you, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, could he, would he have benefited from finishing undergrad at Harvard or maybe, you know, pursuing an MBA, maybe a little less STEM, a little less comp sci and, you know, data visualization and optimization, more of the humanities and ethics? Would that have helped his worldview and and the controversy that the company is in now? Uh, I think so. I think liberal arts more than anything else would have helped. A uh, little philosophy here and there, a few ethics courses wouldn't have hurt Mark Zuckerberg a bit. Might have made him more of a human than a robot. We have a question from Julian. How does Poets and Quants go about ranking undergrad programs, and what does it take for a university to improve its undergrad ranking? Are there certain emerging concentrations or majors that these schools should focus on? That's a really good question. You know, uh, we started ranking undergraduate programs in part because business schools came to us and literally asked us to do it. Other major ranking out there is U.S. News, and frankly, it's really dramatically flawed, if not pathetic, in the way they measure an undergraduate business institution. So we think there are three core elements to what makes a quality experience. And one is admissions. You know, who you bring in, what your initial ingredients are. Just if you look, if you're a gourmet cook, you want to make sure you get the very best ingredients, the freshest ingredients you possibly can to make the best meal. And I think that's also true of an educational institution. The best students you attract are going to add tremendous value to each other, to the educational experience, and to the aftermath of the program. So we think that the admissions policies and procedures 
are one third of the equation of a great institution. Secondly, obviously the academic experience, how deep, how thorough, how broad, uh, what are the elective offerings, how much experiential learning do you get? Do you get exposure to different cultures, geographies, and business styles? That's all incredibly important. And we think that that is also obviously very central to a, a quality experience. And then we think the other piece of the measurement is co- the career outcomes. Did you get an internship that either gave you really valuable experience, if not even a full-time job offer? And then we look at what kind of jobs did you get? Did, how quickly were you in uh, employment after your graduation? Uh, how much money did you make? Did you have a sign-on bonus? We look at all that. So we really think that one-third, one-third, one-third is how we evaluate undergraduate institutions. Now, how can you do better in the rankings? Do better in the rankings by attracting better students. The student measurements are not only standardized test scores, but they're also your you know, class standing at high school, whether or not you are a merit scholar, things like that. You can improve the academic experience by adding probably more experiential learning opportunities by uh, making sure you have a diverse class and an inclusive environment. Uh, and obviously you can prove, you can improve career outcomes of students by making sure more of them get internships that lead to job offers or internships that lead to experience that make the job search easier for them, getting them placed, building relationships with uh, companies that see that your graduates have value. That's all the different things that schools can do to improve their ranking. You know, John, in the spirit of full disclosure, Julian is one of our excellent students who's uh, president of Spider Ventures. So he's uh, actually creating experiential uh, opportunities for our students to launch new ventures. It's a, it's, a, it's a business incubator. So I think that speaks to that point. I want to ask you about your career in terms of uh, being a business journalist, because I've always felt in some ways that kind of uh, is a good example of the blending of things like storytelling, analytical thinking, good communication skills with a you know, a really nice uh, rounding uh, education in business that you required for that. How, how do you propose somebody gets into the, into, the, uh, into the business of being a business journalist? What's the proper preparation for that? Well, <laughs> you know, I really wish that I had a business education. I didn't. Um, I did take, you know, a number of business type courses uh, but but I, I took what many would regard a totally useless degree. I do not. Uh, a degree in journalism. I have a graduate degree in journalism. I, th- I think you need to be interested in business to cover business, obviously. So if you wanted to be a business journalist, I think you should be reading the Wall Street Journal. You should be very much keeping tabs on the market, what's happening. You should li- be listening to Robin Farzad, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, and, and I do think if you are in university, uh, taking a number of business courses is, would be incredibly valuable to you. I think a business degree might be even more valuable than a, a journalism degree, to be honest. And then it's just throwing yourself at it. You know, I, I always felt like I wasn't covering business. 
I was covering the great drama of life. I think there's incredible drama in the world of business. And my job, the way I defined it, was to try to capture that drama, recreate it for my readers, uh, let them feel like they were in the room when something important happened. And also thinking about, you know, you write about a decision that a company or an executive makes, but you never write about what they didn't do or what alternatives were available to them when they made the one decision that they did. And I was always fascinated by the choices people made and uh, and trying to explore that in in my stories. So have you found so, this generally a comedy, a, a, <laughs> a tragedy, <laughs> a melodrama? What type of drama have you found business to be in your experience? Because I read that you referred to it as the great drama. Yeah, look, look, I, I think people... People's lives are very much determined by what they do at work. If you have a productive and fulfilled work life, you come home happy. Uh, if you don't, you may come home uh, to be a grouch and your grouchiness may impact your personal life and the, and the people you love around you. So I, I always thought that employers have tremendous power and influence over how people live their lives. And that's why I became a business journalist. You know, most people who are attracted to journalism are reformers at heart. They tend to like writing about politics and public policy. I really thought that the biggest decision makers in everyone's life were business people, period. And uh, and how business people treat others and treat their communities and society at large is far more important than what government can often do given the restrictions on uh, government uh, and how, uh, you know, aligned it is to the ups and downs of politics. John, you know, in closing, one of the most fascinating uh, uh, confluences of, of 2020 headlines, if you ask me, Pfizer was kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average just as it was racing to develop a vaccine to kind of, you know, save humanity. Uh, Pfizer has become a household word. You know, people go around saying, I got the Pfizer, I got the Moderna, and yet there's such a disconnect between markets and reality. And so I'm thinking more broadly about corporate social responsibility, the bigger callings, issues facing all of us, and the kinds of firms that are going to be attracting young people coming out of the lockdown. What are, what are you seeing? People are going to change it. Uh, Mickey knows this. It, in your students, in the people that come to your classrooms or who now study online, people just don't want a job. They want a job where they think they can do something good for people. And the disconnect that's long existed between the markets and, and Wall Street and Main Street, I, I think that distance is going to shrink. Because I think that younger people who are much more idealistic, even than uh, us who grew up you know, protesting Vietnam and in the Watergate era, uh, they, they really want to do something that's connected to improving the world. And no matter how you define the world, it could be your small little company, your organization, your community, your neighborhood. But there's more to life than just making a paycheck and buying stuff. Uh, I really do think that young people are going to rise to power in these organizations and make a very big difference. I'm a Moderna guy, by the way. I've had my two vaccinations and um, very happy about them. And ExxonMobil getting kicked out of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You think about climate change bleeding into business headlines, bleeding into all sorts of headlines. They're all bleeding into one. They're also very connected now. When you see businesses also getting involved in issues of racial equity and income inequality, the big 
social responsibility issues of the day. Well, by way of thanks and gratitude, I want to thank you, John, for hiring me back in 2005 out of B-School and my internship at the New York Times. I was a big fan of a book you wrote at the turn of the century, Chainsaw, the notorious career of Al Dunlap in the era of profit at any price. He was known as uh, Chainsaw Al on Wall Street. This book, one of my favorites, it was a page turner and it inspired me when I was shifting careers and I remember binging your magazine features and your other books. And next thing I know, you're interviewing me for a job. Now, 22 years after that book came out, the tables have turned. John Byrne, founder and editor-in-chief of Poets and Quants, grateful to you for coming on. Please visit us here in Central Virginia. I will be there shortly. Full disclosure, our producer tonight is Claire Morgan. Special thanks to Andy Miner and Courtney Ennis. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. And you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. And sure, connect with me on LinkedIn or DM me. Get in touch however you'd like. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>